Amen. All right. Good to see everybody. We are continuing in Genesis. Uh, this is part three of Noah. Uh, so the first week we did kind of before the flood. Last week was during the flood. And then this week is going to be after the flood. Um, which, frankly, a lot of people, a lot of it's not covered. A lot of this part is not, not mentioned. It's because you'll, you'll see at the end, especially, why it's not mentioned. <laughs> um, but but it's, it kind of fits that we're coming to this at, at Thanksgiving. Because this is really a moment where... Noah and his family are, are thankful to be off of the ark and to, um, you know, to, to give thanks for what God has done, the rescue that they were given. Um, and, and we're in a similar position, right? That, that we, when we come to Thanksgiving, it's usually then we're, we're marking, hey, here's what God has done in our lives. Here's what God has brought us through this year. Um, and, and so that's, it kind of fits together there. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. And this is right after they've gotten off the ark. Just, they've just left it. Right after, and then it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon every, every, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I, have, as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. It's kind of surprising that the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark is build an altar and sacrifice some of the clean animals. Now he had seven pairs of those that he brought into the ark. And, and certainly, it's possible that many of the animals bred when they were on the ark, multiplied while they were on the ark. But still, even if it's, four, even if it's 14, even if it's double, even if it's 28 clean animals, the idea that you get off the ark, you're the only living beings left, that you would sacrifice some of that immediately right there. Not, not just for your own eating, but like he, was, he sacrificed them to God, burned them up to God. Does that, if you were in his position, does that seem like a wise decision? Right? Would you ever advise that of your own, like, business or your own partners or for your own family? Would that be the advice you would give? Almost certainly not. It seems crazy to me that you would give up part of that. You would sacrifice, kill some of those animals to just sacrifice to God. But it shows 
Noah's trust in God, right? It shows his, thanks, his thankfulness that God has brought him through it, and it shows that he believes that God will, will prosper them in this moment, right? It shows incredible faith that he had in believing that God had brought them through this and would continue to sustain them and, and cause them to grow. It shows some of that faith. The other thing we see in that, in that section where, he's, where he offers the sacrifices, we see this phrase that's going to end up being repeated, and that's that he offered, he offered it up, and it was a pleasing, verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And this phrase, idea of, of offering to God being a pleasing aroma or containing a pleasing aroma, uh, is going to be repeated throughout the Old Testament, is repeated uh, 43 times in the Old Testament, all relating to sacrifice and times that they sacrifice to God. So we see this in, in Exodus chapter 29 as one example. He's giving, it, he's giving it a, an instruction on, on sacrifice, and he says, you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And it, and it makes total sense in just a gut way of like why this is a pleasing aroma, right? Have you ever been around a barbecue joint? smells good, right? Or like, you know how you always know when there's an In-N-Out nearby? <laughs> or if you step out of your car and you're anywhere near an In-N-Out, you go, there's an In-N-Out. I can tell. I, right, where is it? That's, the, 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 that's what's happening here. He's saying there's this, literally this pleasing aroma. And that, that's, again, throughout the Old Testament in talking to sac- about sacrifices, this pleasing aroma going up to God. But that's actually not where this metaphor stops. It's brought back in again in the New Testament, and Paul uses it several times in the New Testament. And I want to point those out because it it then says something to us about where this this idea goes of being a pleasing aroma to God. So the first time it's in uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, he actually talks about Jesus' sacrifice on on the cross being a pleasing aroma. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Right, so he points to Jesus as Jesus was one of these fragrant offerings that are pleasing aroma to God. And then he talks about the gift that the Philippians gave to him. We looked at this this last summer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he talks about their giving, right? This is a financial gift. This isn't actually a gift that should smell at all, right? But he's giving a, and he's par- taking this idea and putting it onto the idea of their giving as being a, a pleasing aroma to God. And then he says it again to actually talk about the effect that Christians should have on their surroundings. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. He's saying that the way that, the, the same way that, like, I may use that analogy about in and out right? You always know there's an in and out around. 
you should have that effect on the people that you encounter. They should have an idea. There's something, Jesus is around, right? I smell the, the aroma of Jesus is around you, is on you, that it comes out, it radiates from you, right? That you have the love of Jesus and it radiates from you in a way that people around you notice, right? Now, if you're smelling in a way that people notice and it's just natural smell, that's probably a bad thing, <laughs> right? You're either not bathing enough or you're wearing too much of something, right? But the idea that that's the kind of effect we should have, that people should have that feeling from us, it's all connected from this, this all flows through, right? It's saying that, that the Old Testament sacrifices, they were a pleasing aroma to God, and then Jesus himself was a pleasing aroma to God. Our gifts are a pleasing aroma to God, and then we ourselves can have that same effect. We can be a pleasing aroma to God, and to those around us can tell when we're around. But we also see in this section that the problem isn't fully solved, right? He says mankind is still evil. Mankind still has a problem that's still not solved, and we'll see that even more coming forward. We also see the blessing reinstated, the blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve, where he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's reiterated here to Noah. He's saying, hey, my creation intent is still, that's still in effect. I still want you to be fruitful and multiply. We're restarting things from here. And then the other thing we see is that animals are now afraid of man. He says the fear of, the, of these animals that he's giving them for food, he's saying they, they, they'll now be afraid of you. That seems to be new in this moment in history, right? That after the, after the ark, after they got off the ark, animals are afraid of humans. It seems that God's a, a creation intent they were not afraid of him. And then even after the fall, the initial fall, they're not, uh, there's not a fear of a that animals have of humans. But now he's saying, now there will be. It's a new thing. And this, again, just points to the fact that, that this is still, we're still getting further away from God's creation intent. There are still consequences to mankind's sin that are being implemented that were not even at the initial fall. <coughs> And then last thing in here, he talks about this idea of I'll require a reckoning, right? He says this idea of life for life. It's really the death penalty being instituted, right? He's saying, and, and the thing is he directly references Cain and Abel, right? When he says from his fellow man, that's like brother man. That word fellow is the same as brother. And so he's saying fellow man is really brother man. He's really directly pointing to Cain and Abel. And even more so, he's pointing to it. He's saying, hey, from now on, life for life, that, if, if, that it, if, if a man kills someone, his blood will be shed. If by, if by a man's hand a blood is shed, his blood will be shed by man. Life for life. Right? He starts to implement this idea because that was not the case with Cain. Right? Cain was allowed to go free. Cain murdered, and he was basically allowed to go free and flourish. Right? He took his wife, and they continued to have children, and, and that led to the situation that that we, that we came to with the flood, before the flood, where mankind was extraordinarily evil. There was also some demonic influence there, but, but it had gotten really bad because this, this sin had been allowed to flourish unchecked. And so he's saying, hey, now that has to be put aside. Sin cannot be allowed to reign unchecked. The other thing that's important to see is that 
it sets the stage for Jesus' death on the cross for us. Right? We can directly see that again, where he's saying, like, hey, there has to be life for life, that, that, that that's ultimately the sacrifice that is required is the life of a man. It really sets the stage and starts pointing us toward someone will have to give their life for people. Someone innocent will have to give their life. <coughs> All right. Continuing to the sign of the covenant, Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God's, God's setting a covenant now. We could call it the Noahic covenant is, is how theological people refer to it. He's setting this covenant with man that the earth will never be destroyed by a flood again. The entire earth will never be destroyed by the flood again. And it's a covenant of mercy, right? It's a covenant of saying, I'm going to withhold that judgment. I'm not going to destroy it again. And notice it's not only with man, it's also with animals. This is one of the only covenants that's also with animals. And he's saying this covenant is for every living thing that, is, that exists because creation is affected by human actions, right? That, are, that the creation itself is affected by us. Paul points to this in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 23, where he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Saying the creation itself has been affected. Animals Every living thing, even plants and everything, has been affected by the fall, by man's rebellion against God, and is waiting eagerly for restoration. That the creation is not as God originally intended it, and so everybody is affected, and everybody, everything that exists is affected, and everything that exists is waiting eagerly for the restoration that will come. And he says that it will never be destroyed again by the flood, but it will be destroyed again in the last day. It will be destroyed by fire. And Peter talks about this and really directly draws a connection between these two things in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. We'll start with verses 3 through 7. And we'll continue further than that. But he says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
And that by these means, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Right there, he's pointing to the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. What he's saying, there's, we're in a waiting period. We're in a period of mercy that the covenant between God and Noah that's symbolized by the rainbow is indicating God withholding judgment. That God is saying, judgment day has not yet come. I'm withholding judgment. I'm giving a chance for mercy. The, one of the problems is that oftentimes we step in and go, okay, God's not going to judge, but I am. Right? Let me, let me bring my judgment into this situation. Let me put judgment on this. Because we see God withholding judgment. And it can be painful for us to see God withholding judgment because we see the effects of sin reigning in this world. And so we want to put a stop to it. But oftentimes we step ahead of God and we decide we're going to judge. But he's saying, hey, I'm withholding judgment now because I want to give people a chance. I want to give people a chance to accept the forgiveness that is offered on the cross. Rather, this whole process, this Noahic covenant sets in motion this period of mercy where God is saying, I'm going to show you the way. I'm going to show you who will save you. And ultimately, it comes to Jesus comes, is born, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and says, anybody that wants forgiveness can come to me and get it here. Anybody can find righteousness only through the cross of Jesus Christ. That he came and died for you. Right, that life for life. He came and died for you, paid the punishment that you should have had. And if you accept it, you can join with us in waiting eagerly for his coming. Join with the creation in waiting eagerly for him to come and restore all things. And in that day, judgment will come. But if you're covered with the blood of Christ, it won't come for you. If we continue in this section in Peter, he goes on and says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He wants you to repent. He wants you to come and accept the forgiveness that he offers. And he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are going to be dissolved, right? he says, since this is the case, since we know this is coming, we know the end, we know who the answer is, we know that Jesus offers these things, and since we know what's coming next, he asks this question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Saying, living in this reality of saying, hey, we're in this mercy time. We're in this time of coming where, where we can come to Christ where we can expand his kingdom in this world, where we can tell the people that this is reality, tell people the good news that Jesus offers, 
What kind of lives should we live? How, what should our priorities be if this is the reality for us? If we know that this is coming, if we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, that our hope is not here on this earth, but is in that new heavens and the new earth that is to come. How would that change how we live? If that was a daily reality for you, that Jesus could come back anytime, how would it change how you live? How would it change what you worry about? How would it change what you spend your money on? How would it change how you spend your time? If we actually live with that reality. We all know that. This, this is what I'm saying. I know that we all know this. right? We know this intellectually. If I say, hey, you know Jesus could come back anytime. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. You know that our ultimate hope is in the new heavens and the new earth? Yeah, 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 I got that. Come on. I've been, I've been around the block. I know what's going on. But it's not a, it's not a reality in our heart. It's not a reality in our, in our day-to-day life, oftentimes. Oftentimes it doesn't impact our daily decisions, our daily life the way that it should. Because it's easy to put on the back burner. It's easy to set aside. But he's saying this could come any time. All right. We're going to come on to the last section here. And I'll tell you, before I, before I read this last section that we're going to be in, Ham's violation, in, in verses... Uh, Verses nine, chapter nine, verses eighteen through twenty-nine. Before I read that, I'll tell you this: I was I read a bunch of commentary. I always read a bunch of different commentaries and look at different things and study it. I was literally reading a commentary this week that, in the beginning of the section, said this part should not be in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and I put it down. I was like, you don't get to decide that. But it like you feel for him once you read this, like. Most everybody skips this, and as you read it, you're going to be like, I totally understand why. It's a terrible ending to this story. Like, it's great. Like, they get off the boat. Hey, be fruitful and multiply. Here's my covenant, the, the rainbow. Like, let's leave it there. That's a beautiful, it's all wrapped up. Like, let's just leave it be, right? But unfortunately, I am not one to skip parts of the Bible. Otherwise, I would just skip this part. But I'm not going to do that. So, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and, two, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Okay, so here's, here's what I'll say to this. First of all, this, we see this fall happen, right? We see Noah is this perfectly righteous man and, the, and he gets in, the, in the, the ark and he does everything God commanded and he's following faithfully and then he even gets off the ark and he thanks God and he's offering sacrifices and he seems to be on the right track. God makes this covenant with him. And now all of a sudden, 
he's getting drunk. And, he, and, and, and kind of, what, what's happening here with Noah? Well, I'll tell you, this kind of thing happens all the time. As a pastor, we see this all the time. We call it the, the like, mountaintop effect, right? That you go away to a retreat, especially with working with youth and that kind of thing. They go away to a retreat or they go on a mission trip and they come back and they're so excited. They felt so connected to God and they're all on board and they're ready to go serve God and do everything. And they get back and then everything starts to kind of fall apart. They start to drift away and you don't see them anymore. We see that all the time. Or you see even adults come back to Christ because they're in some crisis. They lost their job or their wife left them or something terrible happened, some terrible illness, and they come to Christ and then they're, they're so grateful <coughs> for the help and for everything they've gotten from it. But then things start to get good again. They get a new job or they, you know, their life starts to get put back together and then everything's going good and so then they drift away. We see this, this is a regular pattern. This is not that surprising as a human experience. We see this happen all the time. So it's important that we guard against it. I always tell people when they have those experiences, when, we're at the, when our team's coming back from a, a mission trip or when, when people are on retreat, that kind of thing, I, I warn people, and it's important to keep this in mind, that like, when you're in those moments, like that's when Satan's going to come and try to steal that joy, come and try to take it away, take away your devotion, take away the things that you've decided, give you reasons to not do it. Like if you come back from a, uh, from a, a mission trip or a retreat, something like that, like most likely wh- whoever's left behind, like whoever your family is, like if you're a kid coming back to your parents, like you're going to come back and they're going to be mad at you about something or something's going to be going wrong at home. If you're you know, a husband or a wife and you come back, like your spouse is probably going to be upset. When you get back, there'll probably be some kind of issue there because Satan is trying to stop you. And if you recognize that, recognize the spiritual warfare side of this, you can guard against it. It doesn't have to happen. But recognize that it's a possibility. Recognize that it's likely to happen. A big question in this is what did Ham do? What, what was so bad about this? This is one thing that a lot of people go, well, he cursed his child, like he cursed his grandson because something his son did and walked in on him naked? Does that seem like a, a, a right situation? Does that seem like, does that seem right? Does that seem okay? Wasn't this more Noah's fault than anybody's? Right, that's, that's one question that we can have when we look at this. And we'll say this. First of all, some form of disrespect happened at the minimum, the bare minimum of what Ham did was disrespect his father. Which is a bigger deal in that culture and in a lot of cultures than in our culture. We've kind of let that slide a lot of ways where we don't necessarily take disrespect of parents or dishonoring of parents as seriously. So that's one side of this. On a darker side of this, it's very possible that what Ham did was a lot more than just look at his father. Um, If we take some verses like that if we look at this verse in Leviticus, these verses in Leviticus, chapter 18, it says this. Do we have Leviticus 18? Yeah. It says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness so it is possible 
this, 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 this idea of uncovering nakedness or looking at someone's nakedness is often a euphemism, is, is used as a euphemism for sex, for sexual contact in Scripture later on, in Leviticus. That's the way it's, it's said. He's talking about sexual contact when he's saying uncover, talking about uncovering your father's nakedness. And it says that, that Ham uncovered or like saw his father's nakedness. Leviticus says, you should not uncover your father's nakedness, which is your mother's nakedness, right? Or his wife's nakedness. So it is possible that what Ham did was sleep with his mother or his stepmother if, if Noah had more than one wife, which is very possible as well. And if that's the case, then his son Canaan could be the offspring of that union, which would make a lot more sense why Noah would curse Canaan if they's the offspring of that. Now, I know that that is very disturbing, but it is possible. And it kind of makes more sense based on what comes next than it's just a, oh, I saw this thing. It is a, it is a possibility um, that this is this terrible crime that, that Ham committed as opposed to just came in and looked at it. Now, if you're more comfortable with, I like the idea, you just walked in, saw it, and, then, and, and so then that deserves his, his son to be cursed, that's fine. Totally, just take that. That's way easier, more comfortable. But the consequences that come out of this that we're going to see next week, because we'll see who Canaan's descendants are, make a lot more sense if this violation was more, was something more than that. The other thing we'll see here is that it's, that it's, it's Ham's fault, but Noah has some responsibility here too. Noah has some, has, has some problem here too, because he, he, he sinned as well, right? He got drunk. And the creating the wine, becoming a, becoming a, a vineyard grower and becoming a winemaker, that wasn't a problem. And there's lots of places in scripture that talks about the usefulness of wine, and talks about it as a blessing, but his getting drunk was wrong, right? His, his drunkenness was the problem, and so although Ham is at fault, Noah is partly to blame, and as we look at this and talk about, view this at the very least as a story of honor and dishonor, that children are to honor their father and mother, but also parents are to be worthy of honor, right? Parents are also to be worthy of honor, and that's something that we should keep in mind as parents also, am I somebody who is acting in a way? My, parents, my kids have to honor me either way. Am I being someone who is worthy of that? Whether or, not, whether or not I am worthy of honor that they give me, that they should give me either way. All right, we'll wrap this up with how should we then live? How should we then live? First, live in a way that causes you to actively trust God. Right? Live in a way that causes you to actively trust God. When Noah came off the ark and sacrificed those animals, he had to actively trust that God was going to flourish them, that God was going to cause everything to be revitalized, to be fruitful and multiply. That was going to happen. His sacrifice was trust. Secondly, reflect God's mercy in your relationships. Right? God is, is, is a God of mercy. He's withholding judgment. He's providing a way of forgiveness. He is that, that sign of that rainbow is, is a sign of that we have mercy, that God is withholding judgment, but it's for the whole earth. So then also when we see that symbol of the covenant, are we reminded to be merciful? Are we reminded to withhold judgment? To offer the grace and hope that Jesus offered to us? 
Thirdly, to see rainbows as a sign of the Noahic covenant. Right? That's, that's a, it's a symbol that is often tried to be reclaimed for other purposes. What if when you saw the rainbow, saw a rainbow in any context, whether a real one or the symbol of a rainbow, you thought God is withholding judgment on the people underneath that symbol. God is giving them a chance. I need to offer grace and hope and peace and forgiveness that God offers to those people, that God offered me. And then lastly, honor your parents, honor your father and mother, and parents be worthy of honor. Where can you be worthy of honor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for your word, even though when it can be confusing, even when it can be difficult to understand. We thank you for the truth of your word, God. We thank you for the mercy that you showed to Noah, the mercy that you showed through the, the rainbow, the withholding of judgment, God, this time that you've given us to come to you. We pray that more and more people would come to you, that, that we would see a revival, that we would cause people to, to come, that you would use us as a, as a tool, as a means of conveying your mercy, God. God, we pray that you would be glorified in all that we do, that as we come around the table of this Thanksgiving, we would be thankful for the ways that you have worked in our lives, that we would be thank, thank you for the things you have done for us. Father, we thank you for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, would you all stand?